This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. As the Ukrainian war enters its third week, it appears that Russia's madman dictator Vladimir Putin badly misjudged his country's ability to impose its will upon the Ukrainian people. Putin has but one objective, to crush the independent Ukrainian state, to liquidate or imprison its most vocal supporters, and force the nation to become a vessel of Moscow. Russia has uh, has crossed so many red lines, Mr. Putin has, in regards to violating international norms and laws. He must be held accountable for his war crimes. He has committed war crimes, and he should be held fully accountable. We saw that uh, happen after World War II. We said we never allow atrocities to occur again, and we have. And here you have a major country uh, clearly crossing the line of what is acceptable. But nearly two weeks into President Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Europe's largest land war since 1945, the image of a Russian military as one that other countries should fear, let alone emulate, has been shattered. Kyiv was the main effort of the several prongs, four prongs initially that invaded uh, Ukraine, Uh, but it bogged down almost immediately because Vladimir Putin uh, massively uh, underestimated the capacity of the Ukrainian army to fight, uh, the population to resist, uh, and the resilience of the Ukrainian government. And those three things together have given the Ukrainians in the last tactical mile, so to speak, enormous capacity uh, to engage and defeat the Russians. Ukraine's military, which is dwarfed by the Russian force in most ways, has somehow managed to stymie its opponent. Ukrainian soldiers have killed more than 3,000 Russian troops, according to conservative estimates by American officials. And they are fighting bravely uh, in the streets and outside their cities. They're fighting very creatively. Uh, And I think, you know, it's a mark of their courage and their skill that here we are a week into this operation uh, and the only city uh, that we can even talk about uh, remotely being controlled or being taken by uh, the Russians is is that southern town of Kherson. They still have not really made any appreciable progress uh, towards Kyiv, although it is certainly uh, coming under a a violent bombardment. Kharkiv as well, a lot of fighting there. Uh, So they have not made the progress that we believe they had intended to make by this point in their uh, in their war. Ukraine has shot down military transport planes carrying Russian paratroopers, that they've downed helicopters and blown holes in Russia's convoys using American anti-tank missiles and armed drones supplied by Turkey, the officials said, citing confidential U.S. intelligence assessments. The Russian soldiers have been plagued by poor morale, as well as fuel and food shortages. Some troops have crossed the border with MREs, that's meals ready to eat, that expired in 2002, U.S. and other Western officials said. And others have surrendered and sabotaged their own vehicles to avoid fighting. Putin started this war as a war of choice, and it has now become a war of necessity for him. He has to make gains either to win outright or to force the Ukrainians to capitulate at the negotiating table. So we are seeing this now, this kind of siege uh, operation going on across across Ukraine and, and no willingness to allow humanitarian corridors. It's a turnabout that not only proves to be a challenge for Russia's standing in Europe and abroad, but within our own borders. Suddenly, the far-right goons within the GOP who have made a show of supporting Putin have been forced to eat crow. 
I'd rather say they've been forced to eat shit. Their genius friend who was going to walk into Ukraine and impose his will is getting his fucking ass kicked by a vastly outnumbered foe. I knew Putin very well. Got a lot of uh, great charm and a lot of pride. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine as independent. And I said, this is genius. And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. You got to say that's pretty savvy. I knew that he always wanted Ukraine. I used to talk to him about it. I mean, what he's done for Russia is really amazing. And he's done it by outsmarting our country at every single step. The day after the Olympics, he starts with Ukraine. The day after. How smart? How smart? Furthermore, Trump and company were poised to raise vast amounts of money off the Russian invasion. But that, of course, depended on Putin overrunning the country. Biden's so-called weakness now looks like smart diplomacy. And Trump is left to answer for his past actions in holding the Ukrainian people hostage with his sleazy blackmail demands. But leave it to these fucking scumbags to try to rewrite history to their advantage. I have not met President Zelensky, but during the impeachment, the first impeachment three years ago, you felt like you got to know him as we study what this about the phone call and everything else. And you could tell this was a different leader. This was a guy of courage. This guy was 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 con- committed to I making sure he you. did the best for his country. He's a good man. God bless him and, and the people of that Listen, great country. The first sign of political trouble came early last week. As the world responded to Russia's war in Ukraine, Donald Trump issued a written statement that claimed, amongst other things, he heroically provided Ukraine with very effective anti-tank busters known as javelins. It was proof, the former president suggested, of how incredible and magnanimous he was to Zelensky. I think it's important for everybody to understand that after you know 30 years of a very close relationship with Ukraine, bipartisan support, Democrats and Republicans. That was interrupted in the Trump era. Uh, remember, he was impeached because he withheld, he withheld military assistance. I want to repeat that. He withheld military assistance to Mr. Zelensky so that he, in, because he wanted alleged dirt uh, as a quid pro quo, Um, uh, from the Ukrainian government. What the Republicans neglected to mention is that he initially didn't want to provide Ukraine with the javelins. And when he grudgingly changed his mind, Trump tried to extort our ally. He provided the military assistance if and only if Ukraine helped him cheat in the 2020 election. I do want to ask you about something that you recently said in an interview, that former President Trump's political failure played at least a small role in this invasion we're seeing right now. How, how so? Well, you know, when the uh, controversy over uh, Ukraine and where the Democratic National Committee server was and what Hunter Biden's financial arrangements were in Ukraine, President Zelensky had just assumed office. And uh, he knew that uh, dealing with the Russians in the Donbass and their annexation of Crimea was going to be one of his top priorities. And yet he was unable to establish a relationship with uh, the president of the United States who only wanted to talk about putting pressure on Ukraine to help out his political fortunes. That went through the end of 2019. It went through the entire 2020 election. 
very, very difficult to get the attention at the Oval Office level. And so when Biden came into office, uh, they were way behind in the sort of relationship that uh, Ukraine should have had. And I think Putin was waiting for the election to be over. I don't know that he had any idea who would win, but I think uh, this was a long delay in Zelensky's ability to establish a, a, a relationship at the top level with the United States. And so I do think it had a role. It wasn't dispositive, but you can't dismiss the loss that Ukraine needed that it couldn't fill. Nevertheless, it was a reminder that the race to rewrite the history of Trump's Ukraine scandal, the scheme that led to the first of the Republicans' two impeachments, was on. Well, first off, we could have passed aid to Ukraine a week ago. Uh, there was no reason to wait to include it in this massive spending bill that's coming up soon that we've been working on for months, and we should have passed it a week ago. And if we can't get that big bill passed this week, we should pass it uh, uh, as its own bill. Um, second, the Biden administration, the Democrats, should stop telling Vladimir Putin what we're not going to do. This goes oh, back boy. to the early days whenever mm -hmm. uh, the president first said that we'd under no condition send troops to Ukraine. Uh, well, even if that's our policy, Harris, we shouldn't be telling Vladimir Putin what we won't do and then continually reminding him what we won't do. It projects weakness and indecision and it allows him to continue to escalate in Ukraine. Again, we could have avoided this war from the beginning if we had been firmer with Vladimir Putin, starting when this buildup occurred in late September and early October before it became known to the wider world in late November, early December. The former president kept this going yesterday, issuing another stupid-ass written statement, boasting the fake news media refuses to report that I was the one who very early and strongly gave the anti-tank busters, the javelins, to Ukraine. This remains delusional. Congress approved the military assistance. Trump didn't want to provide the assistance at all, and he ultimately tried to leverage the assistance to advance his own ambitions. Well, you know, you never know about bravery. Some people think they're brave and they're not brave, and other people don't think of themselves as very brave and they step up. You never know until you get tested. And uh, he's being tested at the highest level, and so far he's really shown great leadership and great bravery. Uh, they say he was an actor or a comedian and all of that's fine, but he is showing a lot of bravery so far. And hopefully, hopefully we won't have to need that too much longer because maybe things can end. This should not happen. This should never have happened. And Putin has, he said that he thinks that Putin will kill him. that's Well, that's what he thinks. I believe he does think that, and it's probably true. But he's showing great bravery, absolutely. According to the official White House call summary, Zelensky specifically told Trump as part of a discussion about security measures, we are ready to continue to cooperate for the next steps. Specifically, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. A moment later, the Republican replied, I would like you to do us a favor though. What followed was a scheme in which the then-American president tried to leverage security aid to an ally in the hopes that Zelensky and his government would help Trump cheat ahead of the 2020 U.S. election. Trump immediately follows saying, quote, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine, Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say, CrowdStrike. 
CrowdStrike is the name of the cybersecurity company that investigated the DNC server hack in 2016. Trump continues, I guess you have one of your wealthy people, the server, they say Ukraine has it. There are a lot of things that went on, the whole situation. I think you're surrounding yourself with some of the same people. I would like to have the attorney general call you or your people, and I would like you to get to the bottom of it. The president then brings up Robert Mueller's testimony before Congress the day before, quote, as you saw yesterday, that whole nonsense ended with a very poor performance by a man named Robert Mueller, an incompetent performance. But they say a lot of it started with Ukraine. Whatever you can do, it's very important that you do it if that's possible. As outrageous as Trump's misconduct appeared at the time, it looks even far worse now as Zelensky makes his appeal for arms on a daily basis. What Ukraine needed was for Trump to support its new untested, uncorrupt president on the world stage. So he was taken seriously by his neighbors, including Russia, and by his fellow citizens so that he could be the real leader he needed to be in fending off Vladimir Putin. Instead, Donald Trump chose to try to leverage the situation for his own political gain. And for President Zelensky, having that military aid frozen, having the president of the United States try to shake him down, well, that cost Zelensky in terms of power. It cost him in terms of respect. It cost him in terms of his authority against Vladimir Putin. And who can say what it might end up costing him now that he is in a war that may come down to a matter of small degrees here and there. Back then in 2019, when Zelensky called Trump, there was an opportunity for the American president to stand behind Ukraine, an opportunity to do better. Donald Trump didn't take it. Prior to the war, though, many doubted that he would be able to mount any defense of his country in the face of Russian aggression, let alone a full-out attack. One common refrain about the Ukrainian leader was that he was in over his head, as editor-in-chief Olga Rudenko of the Kiev Independent put it in an op-ed in the New York Times. But within hours of Russia's invasion, Rudenko was among the many who had reassessed the 44-year-old vaudeville actor turned world leader, stating on Twitter, President Vladimir Zelensky has made many really bad mistakes, and I'm sure will make many more. But today, he's showing himself worthy of the nation he's leading. After many initially doubted his capabilities as a wartime president, Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky has emerged as a hero in his nation and around the world. Despite having multiple chances to evacuate, the actor-turned-politician has stayed in Kyiv during the attacks, reportedly telling U.S. officials this, quote, I need ammunition, not a ride. Zelensky has kept Ukrainians updated on the invasion through videos posted on his social media accounts, calling for resolve against the advancing Russian military. This as he acknowledges the danger he faces, saying in one video that intel has revealed him to be the number one target of the Kremlin. According to two sources who spoke with Axios, Zelensky ended a video call with EU leaders last week by saying, quote, this might be the last time you see me alive. The original criticism of Zelensky, largely surrounding failures to crack down on corruption domestically, was surely fair. But there should have been at least one indication that he would be able to step up to the moment. 
That's Zelensky's adept navigation in 2019 of the impossible situation of being blackmailed by the President of the United States as the President of Russia pointed its guns directly at his nation's heart. For me, the most important thing was to preserve our relationship. For me, it was most important to hear that we as countries support each other. It's worth revisiting Zelensky's central role in Donald Trump's first impeachment to understand just how important it was for Zelensky to receive the U.S. military aid. Zelensky became president in May of 2019, and almost immediately, Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Colludi Giuliani, began a pressure campaign to try to force him to announce an investigation of a Ukrainian gas company associated with Joe Biden's son, Hunter, as part of an apparent effort to weaken Biden ahead of the Democratic presidential primaries. All we need, all we need from the president is to say, I'm going to put an honest prosecutor in charge. He's going to investigate and dig up the evidence that presently exists. And is there any other evidence about involvement of the 2016 election? And then the Biden thing has to be run out. I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, I, 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 see, I see him bragging about it on television. And to me as a lawyer, to me as a lawyer, it sounds like a bribe. Somebody in Ukraine's got to take that seriously. Giuliani also pushed Zelensky to announce an investigation into convoluted conspiracy theories that it was actually Ukraine that had meddled in the 2016 election as a way to distract from Russia's actual campaign to boost Trump. Last November, I got information from a reliable investigator, international investigator, that there was a certain amount of activity in Ukraine during the 2016 election that was that involved Ukrainian officials and Ukrainian mostly officials being asked by our embassy and possibly by other official, American officials. Basically, I mean, the, uh, the, the, the statement was to produce dirt on uh, then-candidate Trump and Paul Manafort. If he could make some statement at the right time that he supports a fair, honest law enforcement system and that these investigations go wherever they have to go, it's gonna be run by honest people, that would clear the air uh, really well. And I think it would make it possible for me to come and make it possible, I think, for me to talk to the president and see what I can do about making sure that whatever misunderstandings are put aside. And maybe even, uh, I kind of think that this is this, this could be a good thing for having a much, a much better relationship where we really understand each other. All of this was happening as Zelensky was desperate for some demonstration of support from the United States president as 13,000 of Zelensky's people had been killed in the five-year conflict between Russian-backed separatists and government forces in Ukraine. In the Ukrainian presidential office, they took it very seriously. 
Then, as now, the country was fighting a desperate war against Russian-backed rebels in its east and heavily depended on US weapons and military aid to hold its ground, including millions of dollars that had been frozen by the Trump administration while Giuliani pursued these political investigations. Mindful of the need for a strong relationship with Washington, the Ukrainian presidential advisor on the call tried to assure Giuliani the investigations he wanted would be looked at. And we are ready this day immediately communicated uh, to coordinate, uh, to work uh, and investigate everything which you listed. But privately, Ukrainian officials say they were alarmed at being sucked into American politics, especially when Giuliani repeatedly suggested compliance would open the door to closer US-Ukrainian ties, even a presidential meeting, undermining the former US president's assertions that he never sought political favors from Ukraine to secure US support, so-called quid pro quo. I want nothing, I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Aside from the corrupt nature of Trump's demand, there were strategic reasons that Zelensky could not acquiesce during that call. Zelensky could not risk being seen taking sides in a US political playground rumble for fear of alienating one party or another when his country needed so desperately the support from America. We give money to Ukraine. And it's bothered me from day one. And you have plenty of people just here. I say, how come it's always the United States that gets ripped? Frankly, Ukraine, we want to help them. And I do like the new president. You know why I like him? Because he was honest. Because he said there was no pressure at all exerted on me, meaning him, by the president of the United States. He said it. By the way, that one sentence should stop this. But he said there was no pressure exerted. But you don't have to ask him. All you have to do is read the transcript, read the telephone call. But what I was having a problem with are two things. Number one, Ukraine is known before him for tremendous corruption. Tremendous. More than just about any country in the world. In fact, they're rated one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And I don't like giving money to a country that's that corrupt. All of this was a dry run for Zelensky's moment on the world stage. Oh, the irony that standing between Putin, Russia, and the Ukraine was none other than fucking Donald Trump. And Zelensky played the so-called master dealmaker like a chump by stroking his ego and flattering him. Trump still insists that it was a perfect phone call and there was no quid pro quo. But come on, folks, that's bullshit and we all know it. There just wasn't enough evidence to impeach the scumbag. My hope is that the longer the war goes on, the more we will begin to see that it was Trump and his corrupt minions who nearly dealt the fatal blow to Ukraine by holding much-needed aid hostage. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is none other than General Mark Hurtling. He joins Mea Culpa today to give us a real and a frank assessment of the state of both Russian and Ukrainian forces. Hurtling spent 37 years in the armed forces. During his time as a U.S. soldier, he served in armory, cavalry, planning operations, and training positions. 
Hurdling commanded every organization from platoon to field army. Most notably, Hurdling commanded the United States Army's first armored division in Iraq during the troop surge of 2007 to 2008 and retired as commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe. His knowledge of the complex alliances between European nations and the fragility of the NATO experiment gives him a rare insight into how this war is being fought. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so General, last week on CNN, you said, and I quote, there's no other thing to call this than terrorism. This disgusts me as a soldier. This is not what soldiers do. It's all being driven by one man and his generals, Vladimir Putin, and he's trying to destroy a nation, a population, and its culture. If you would do me the favor, unpack for me, General, how much longer Putin has before he engenders mass protests and a movement to depose him as their leader. How, I mean, how secure is his position as president? I think it's becoming less and less secure by the day, Michael. I've said that from the very beginning. He has overstepped, uh, even though he has quite a bit of media contributions uh, that are giving his misinformation and disinformation to the people of Russia. Unfortunately, the younger crowd in Russia also has access to the Internet. So they're seeing it uh, for what it really is. And I think the more the West publicizes things like we used to do when we had uh, a, a very accurate radio free Europe and others that would beam into foreign countries, the, the least secure Mr. Putin should become. And I think the Russians are also going to be seeing the results of uh, the, the various sanctions that are not only, gonna, not only gonna hurt Mr. Putin and his oligarchs, but they've already affected the banking systems. We see more and more Western corporations pulling out of Russia. So the population is going to unfortunately start feeling the hurt. Um, and, and the combination of the protest within Russia, uh, even in his hometown, in Putin's hometown of St. Petersburg, the information that's continuing to flow, the lack, the, the continued falling of the Russian economy, and the notice that Mr. Putin and his, his cohorts will become persona non grata in various world organizations like the World Bank, the UN, everything else you can think of is going to cause, and, and I should add one more thing, the number of dead Russian soldiers that are going to be affecting the mothers of Russia. You never want to piss off any mother. Uh, so when you see the numbers that are probably going to result from this really ill-conceived and poorly executed campaign, I think all of those things are going to hurt Mr. Putin like no other foreign adventure he has had in the last decade or two. Well, okay, so let's just go to something that you brought up, which is the Russian misinformation, disinformation campaign. So some of the companies, as an example, uh, and I applaud them for what they're doing, but for example, take uh, Meta, which was the former Facebook, as an example. They've now shut off Facebook, Meta, um, in Russia, which means that there's a slew of information, current information that, they, that the Russian citizens were being able to obtain through videos and other forms, TikTok, etc., that they're no longer able to obtain. And I read an interesting article in the Daily Mail, and it was entitled, you know, Russian trust in Putin has surged since the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, this is, to me, was just, it was appalling to read for so many reasons, much, you know, much of which is what you're talking about. You know, allegedly, 
allegedly, the invasion of the Ukraine has increased Putin's approval rating to 71% in less than two weeks. Now, of course, that poll that they're basing this on was by the FOM, which is a Russian state-owned research company. So what do you think that they're going to turn around and say? Right? They're going to say that Putin is the most popular president. They even do what Trump would say. I'm the most popular president in the history of this country. I'm more popular than the czars. I'm more popular than any other president in, in history. How do we stop this misinformation, disinformation campaign? Because while, yes, the younger generation is out there and protesting in significant numbers, He's shutting them down. I mean, how many people have they now jailed in the various different um, cities there in Russia as a result of protest? And let me tell you, they're very different than they are here, meaning, you know, the law enforcement in the United States. You know, could you imagine if the attack on the January 6th on the Capitol was taking place under Putin's watch? Yeah, could you imagine what they did? I saw one of the police officers, uh, officers um, there in Russia smacked this one woman who was then standing by a guy. They grabbed them both. They flung them to the floor, handcuffed. They marched them off, you know, throw them in the back of a truck. And who the hell knows where they are now? But how do we stop this bullshit, you know, blasted fake media propaganda by the Russian state-owned media? Well, you know, first of all, I'll I'll state so far, there are indicators through intelligence that about 7,000 protesters have been jailed in Russia. And as you said, Michael, when you're jailed in Russia, it's not like being jailed in New York City for disturbing the peace. They're going to be there for a very long time, and they're going to be treated very poorly, if that. Uh, or they may be sent off to other places like Mr. Navalny has, uh, that has occurred with him. Uh, but in terms of uh, the, the, the type of information that's coming out, and you pointed to it very well, I'm going to introduce you to a new phrase that people are using. Uh, not many people know about it. It's called MDM, uh, misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, which is a new category of purposely lying to the people. And that's what... Uh, to, to, to get political results. And that's what Mr. Putin is doing and using his media to do. How do you counter it? Well, you counter it with the truth. You counter it with worldwide blast, like I said before, of of different techniques. The internet is still open. And even though uh, internet social media sites like Facebook and Matt are are down in Russia right now, thank God, by the way, I I got off Facebook about eight years ago and it was the best decision of my life. It's just a, a piece of trash. Uh, for, for those of, uh, collecting information, but the, the 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 truth will eventually get through to the people of Russia. And like you said, that seventy one percent approval rating of Putin is a is a malinformation uh, type of poll. Uh, it doesn't state the truth. We're seeing that with tens of thousands of people in St. Petersburg and Moscow and Ekaterinburg and several of the other Russian cities processing. You can't say that the information is not getting through when you see that much of a protest march going on in various cities. And I think, I truly believe that's going to continue uh, in the near future and it's going to get bigger and worse. He cannot sustain this. This is the same kind for those uh, of your listeners that are interested in in history. This is the same kind of factor that played a part in Ceausescu's unraveling in Romania. It just takes time, unfortunately, but the combination of 
of, of the truth coming out with the economic sanctions, with the body bags coming home or not, uh, and with the repeated failures by the Russian military. And what we will start to see is the firing of probably some of the officials within the Russian ministry. All of those things will contribute, I think, to a breaking of the Russian system. Now, having said all that, I'll, I'll just say one more thing. This brings up another danger. What happens if there is this coup or uh, attempt to unseat Vladimir Putin? Is that going to provide even more danger to the West uh, if, if something like that occurs? What kind of things might he do to lash out if he sees his personal well-being in trouble? And we all know the kind of individual Putin is. Well, that's true. Then how do we go about dealing with this um, misinformation, disinformation, and what was the third one? Malinformation? Malinformation. Malinformation. When you have, I hate to say this, right? Because right now we really shouldn't be attacking each other, Republican, Democrat, members of Congress. But you have this moron, Lindsey Graham, who goes out there and makes a statement like, like he did that somebody should assassinate Vladimir Putin. Somebody on his inside, in his inside team. And the problem that you have with that is you've just given his misinformation, disinformation, malinformation campaign a massive boost. Oh, look what they're going to do. The United States is now targeting me, your leader, your president, who allegedly, according to, again, FOM, is at 71% of popularity. That's a pretty big number, if you, right? And it could be even higher according to what they're saying on RT and other, you know, owned, uh, you know, Russian state owned media channels. How do you now stop them from using these stupid comments that are coming from our side and others, right? That, tr that Putin is going to use to continue this propaganda machine that he so effectively, you know, has created and, and basically, you know, and is using. Well, you know, what I'd say is we, we got to start with our own house, Michael, and that is we can't allow, and I, I'm, I'm going to be <laughs> rather coarse for a, for a retired three-star and say we can't allow idiots to uh, propose things on some network channels that are then replicated on the Russian television system. And, and I, I can give you 20 examples. I mean, we're talking about Tucker Carlson. You just mentioned Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton, uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, you know, I could go right on down the list. Ron Johnson, uh, some of the individuals who have, uh, have not upheld what we would consider to be the, the kinds of things a senator or a congressman or a journalist should uphold, we're allowing them to get away with that. And it's because of our free society and, yeah, the right to free speech and all that. And I get it. Uh, but when we're talking about idiotic statements that are either contrary to law, morals or ethics, and we're seeing that and that fall right into the hands of a authoritarian kleptocracy, which Mr. Putin is running, then certainly we're at fault for some of this. We certainly should be bearing the wrath of some of these individuals who who say ridiculous things like go assassinate their leaders or Putin is doing the right thing. I mean, I heard I heard a former colonel of U.S. Army, a guy named Doug McGregor. Uh, yeah, I sure. saw a clip of him on, on Car Tucker Carlson last night. And what he is saying is treasonous. I mean, to say that Mr. Putin should just take over Ukraine 
tells me, first of all, he has no understanding of what the nation of Ukraine is all about. And secondly, he doesn't really care what he's proposing on a, a, a television network that could get back to a, a leader that uses propaganda to get his ways. So again, I, you know, I, I'm more concerned about what's happening in the United States than what's happening in Putin's Russia, because I think that will take care of itself, the latter. What I'm more concerned about is how do we get right within our own politics, within our own system to debate and collaborate and discuss as opposed to having this division on both sides of the fence where idiotic things are being said without a consideration for the effects of those things. The, the proverbial, you're a lawyer, the proverbial yelling fire in a, in a crowded theater. It's just ridiculous. Or as um, Tom Hanks said in Forrest Gump, stupid is as stupid does. And that's just what right. these people are. They're just stupid. Now, one of the things that I had also read is that the Kremlin is now going to step up its propaganda effort simply because Moscow Putin, there's a feeling that they're losing this information war. So what did they do? In Kiev, they bombed the television station. And somehow or another, they are granting the state-owned television stations the ability to go ahead and to cast the signal wide enough that the folks in the Ukraine are able to get the state-owned media channels of Russia. Now, it's not going to prevent something that you brought up that actually touched me, which is about the mothers of, you know, the soldiers, both, you know, Ukrainian and Russian, especially the Russian ones that are looking and scouring the Internet for Ukrainian information for any video that they may find that would show that their that their children, right, who are there serving are still alive. And there will come a point in time that those that are deceased have to be brought back and they will be brought back in body bags and somewhere along the line, if in fact Meta or TikTok or any of the other social media platforms reopen in Russia, you're going to start seeing a massive return of dead bodies to Russia. And I think that's going to be on top of the sanctions, the financial sanctions and so on, it's going to be very injurious to President Putin's tenure there as um, president of Russia. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. But going, going to your statement about the bombing of radio towers and TV towers, you know, that uh, unfortunately in, in the information age when military commanders have to understand the implications of, of ideology and also the passing of public information, if you're not in a democratic state, you're going to do those things. Uh, in a democratic state, you're going to invite the reporters along with you. You're going to embed the reporters. Tell your story. You know, I'll take the brunt if I have to. But in an authoritarian regime like uh, the Chinas of the world, the Russias of the world, some of the others that I, North Korea, others that I could name, there is that control of the media to try and get the message across. You know, Michael, I've, I've traveled many times in both Ukraine and Russia. What is fascinating to me is Ukraine was under the, well, and, and many other European nations, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Romania, Hungary. In traveling in those countries, talking to their soldiers, to their government officials, they know what they went through during the time of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet bloc of nations. They knew that they were perceiving lies coming over the airways. And it became almost a cultural dynamic that they knew that they couldn't counter it, they couldn't speak up against it, 
but they knew it was all bullshit. Unfortunately, what you've got in Russia right now is you've got you've got a pretty good population. And I enjoyed uh, talking to Russian people and seeing the Russian culture the multiple times I was there. But the fact is, they know what's coming out of the Kremlin is bullshit. They know what Putin is saying for the most part is are lies. But unfortunately, they can't counter that for fear of death or imprisonment or a gulag. So, you know, I, I think, again, I, I keep I'm hopeful that the truth will come out, that it will soon take on a momentum and an inertia of its own that that uh, that overcomes the lies and the BS. But, you know, it, it isn't it is not going to happen overnight. That's for sure. Yeah, that's definitely for sure. And we know that Putin is getting more and more agitated thinking um, and angered that the Ukrainians are fighting back instead of, you know, rolling over. You know, for me, this is very personal as I watch um, television. Yeah. I don't know if you know this. My wife was born in the Ukraine. She was born in um, the area. They listed there as Chernowitz, um, which is down by the um, Moldova um, border. It's actually, I, really? I've always heard it as Chernovtsi, which is the way that it was affectionately referred to as. But, you know, my niece, uh, my wife's first, co- you know, first cousins, they have, they have family and friends that are over there. Um, and, you know, I speak with them on a daily basis now, and they're, the communications is just down, and it's very, very difficult for everybody. So I can, you know, my heart goes out to all of the Ukrainians, you know, um, it's so it's so wrong. But this brings me to my next question, General. Could I make a point first? Of course. Michael, what you were just saying is is absolutely true. And, and I'd take it one step further. You know, in the past conflicts, we've had a lot of reporters and journalists embedded with the soldiers who were fighting. Right now, what we're unfortunately seeing is a lot of journalists and reporters in big cities reporting on how the population is being oppressed or killed. Um, from all of my feedback and all the intelligence I'm getting from friends in both Ukraine and, and, other, and especially Poland about what's happening, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian forces, the army and their territorial defense forces are absolutely kicking some ass. They are doing a phenomenal job. And what you just said a minute ago about Russia being very surprised, he is more than surprised. He thought this was going to be a cakewalk that they would subjugate themselves to Russia. They are not doing that. So he has failed from his strategic approach of subjugating Ukraine, uh, further dividing NATO. It's actually united NATO in this action, further dividing a divided United States. And I think we're beginning to see the glimmer of the United States coming together. And you add to all those failed strategic objectives that Mr. Putin had, the fact that his economic system will soon be in ruin and it will affect both him and his oligarchs as well as his entire country. All of those things tell me there's going to be a, a failure driven by the bravery and the courage of the Ukrainian military and, and politicians that are standing up to this stuff. And I'm sorry, but go ahead. No, with your so question. this is actually a great segue into what I was going to ask you, because obviously Putin is extremely frustrated by the lack of the military progress that his Russian troops um have advanced upon Ukraine, which now then put Putin in a place where he decided that he was going to put his country's nuclear arms on high alert. So my question to you is, is there a scenario where Putin would deploy nuclear weapons? Yeah, I I think there could be, certainly. Uh, One of the things that I learned, Michael, in, in attending several exercises in Russia, 
I, I went to my first one as a lieutenant colonel back in the mid-90s after the wall came down. I went to my last exercise there in 2011, you know, when I was commander of U.S. forces in Europe. And what I found fascinating was both of those visits were after the wall came down. So there was, you know, a, a, a different environment than there was during the Cold War. But in watching the Russians conduct military exercises, they would always end their exercises, we call it index, with some type of nuclear event. That was baked into their training, whether it was a tactical nuclear weapon of uh, a thousand kilotons or less, or a strategic nuclear weapon. So what I'm concerned about is certainly Vladimir Putin has said that he will use nuclear weapons. Now, what we don't know is, does that mean he actually will? He has done a lot of things in the last month that I never thought he would do. And several other national security experts are just befuddled by the fact that he is making so many mistakes left and right. Is there the potential for him to make another mistake by using by re, re, referring to nuclear weapons and then you potentially using them? The key is, though, and this is the problem set, uh, when you're in combat, when you're in conflict or political discourse, what you have, unfortunately, is elements of risk. And you have to continue to try and mitigate those risks at every, every occasion. When you're talking about the potential for nuclear weapons, there is no mitigation of a risk. That is a gamble, whether you use them or not, or whether you think the other guy is going to use them or not. So we could bet on the come and say, ah, he won't use them. But if he does, that's a cataclysmic world event. If we bet on the come saying, oh, man, he might use them and we're gambling a little bit with this guy, and he doesn't, well, okay, at least 100 million people are saved from incineration and radioactive uh, pulses. So, I, I mean, that's the horns of a dilemma that you have when you're dealing with a nuclear power. And I actually think the Biden administration is doing a superb job in handling this. People want the gov our government and NATO to do more. They want us to march right in there and stop all the tragedies. And boy, there's nothing more I would like to do than to do that. But this threat, this overhanging threat of nuclear weapons and the potential for expanding a regional conflict into a global one is what I think is concerning to those who make the really hard decisions. You know, General, of course, I defer to your experience, your knowledge in warfare. I have none other than about a dozen and a half fistfights on the street from, you know, from <laughs> Long Island to Washington to Michigan to New York City. But to me, it just seems extremely logical that this was a really bad tactical play for Putin. And the reason that I say that, it reminds me of no more than, you know, a regular fight. You're going to keep threatening somebody over and over and over and you don't engage in that fight. It's the boy who cried wolf theory. And now, you know, I I'm concerned that he may actually deploy, maybe it won't be nuclear, maybe it'll be one of his, you know, ICBMs or one of his other, you know, um, Moabs, right? Mother of all bomb type, you know, um, missiles. And the reason that I think that he's boxed himself into a corner, and I would love your take on this, is because now that he's put that threat out there, and we all know Putin is a tough guy, 
right? I mean, Samba expert, guy who likes to be on horseback, shirt off, fisherman, the whole nine yards, judo, wrestler. I mean, he's, he's the real deal. No joke. I know people who have, you know, fought with him in Samba. Now, of course, they never hit him unless you want you and your whole family to disappear. But he is really right. well-trained. Now that he's put that, that threat out there, you have the United States, you have NATO, you have the EU. If, in fact, that he doesn't do something, they're not going to believe him the next time. And we do know for a fact that there will always be a next time with Putin so long as he's in power. What's the chances that because of the tactical mistake that he made, that he's going to have to do something and do something big? Uh, you know, you would you would have to further define what that something big might be. If it's an attack on NATO, he would be overwhelmed. And I mean that sincerely. I know the strength of NATO versus the strength of the Russian military. Um, could there be other things? Like you could take, as an example, and this is one of the areas that surprised me that he hasn't used more, and I think there's a reason for it, which I won't go into now. But why has he not increased uh, his number of cyber attacks to other organizations other than the military? So in other words, why has he not attempted to go after banking industries, healthcare industries, um, electric industries, nuclear power plants. I mean, there is the potential to do all of those things with cyber warfare. And I think it's because he knows that there is a, the potential, uh, first of all, of a strong cyber defense against him and a counterattack in cyber would be devastating more to his country than anything he could execute against the West. But could he do it? I don't know. Uh, it's something certainly that we're defending against uh, the, the potential from him going to limited cyber operations, LCO, as we call it, to full cyber attack, uh, FCA, which is a different technique altogether. Um, is there the atomic threat? Is there things associated with using long range atomic weapons in just one strike against either a NATO city or someplace in the United States? Would that generate an escalation beyond our imagination, Michael? And yes, I think it would. It would cause probably an economic, a worldwide economic crisis and certainly an all sorts of casualties throughout, uh, you know, specifically the Western Hemisphere. So those are the kind of things that, that I'm concerned about. But I, he is the kind of person that will strike out if he has nothing else to lose. But he's going to lose an awful lot in Ukraine. He, we're already starting to see that. And he's going to be a pariah on the world stage when this is done. He will not be accepted in any international body when this is over and Ukraine wins. And I fully believe Ukraine is going to defeat the Russian forces. It's just a matter of time and how many casualties Ukraine's people want to sustain. But Russia will be defeated. Mr. No, I'm sorry. Mr. Putin will be defeated in this. And I don't see any advancement of him or his brand on the world stage anytime after this is all over. See, I'm, I'm not so much concerned today about Putin attacking NATO, going into Poland, into Latvia or any, you know, and then trying to move further. I'm more concerned about because he made this threat and because the threat is right now not really being taken serious, and we know Putin likes to be taken serious, will he then 
drop a series of, we'll call them atomic, you know, atomic bombs, conventional warheads, right? These um, short and long range ballistic missiles. Just do an all out blitzkrieg on Ukraine and just level, just level Kiev, level, you know, um, Kharkov, level, you know, some of, you know, the, the bigger cities in order to, again, show that when he says something, he means business. And when he means business, that means lives lost. Yeah, and he's already done that. He's already said, when I say something, I mean business, which surprised a lot of people because it has an operational and a strategic failure associated with it. Now, I think what your question is, if I'm, I'm hearing it right, is could he continue to raise all of your, or excuse me, all of Ukraine? Could he continue to just do nothing but uh, attacks with either conventional or atomic weapons. If there's a continued attack with conventional weapons, as much as I hate to say this, Michael, he's gonna run out. Uh, his resupply is not good and his capability of delivering the kind of weapons the United States could, could deliver uh, repeatedly and, uh, is not the same. If he uses one nuclear missile, that's a whole, or nu nuclear attack, that's a whole different ballgame. Uh, I once, when I was a young officer in the Cold War, I once heard a guy say that, hey, you throw a hand grenade at me and it's, it's, it's pretty soon going to, you know, escalate into strategic nuclear weapons being fired at each other. That's how dangerous those are. I'm not sure he knows that. But I think he will find that out if he tries to use any nuclear weapon. Well, let's let's hope. I'm still also concerned about the atomic weapons, and again, just a massive shelling of you know. Um, if you start to see from even from the pictures, look what the Ukrainians are going through right now is disgraceful. But you saw a you saw a, a missile, right? Um, a rocket went through a residential building. Very different than having an atomic bomb dropped on on Kiev, which would level all of Kiev, while you have these brave Ukrainians out there fighting with Molotov cocktails and whatever stinger right. and javelins, you know, that they get their hands on in order to take out, you know, trucks and tanks is a big difference, you know, and he could launch that shit from, you know, from the sea where they do have that capability. They and do. you're right, they will run out but not before which they level Ukraine. And that's my biggest right. concern. And that's something that right. I desperately hope that, you know, the United States and the NATO countries and the EU, um, that they all manage to figure out an answer to. I don't have the answer. That's certainly for sure. But yesterday, General, right. I wanted to ask you this. You posted an image of a captured $11 million Russian anti-aircraft gun system with a caption on it that read, and I quote, this capture, one of several trends, are you losing, meaning Russia, losing equipment and air assets in mass? Are you casualties, killed, wounded, captured, deserted, hashtag, increasing daily? Are you logistic convoys not moving, being destroyed piecemeal, Call for 1,000 troops from Syria. Can you unpack what you meant from, uh, from this, both uh, the Russians and on behalf of the Ukrainians? Yeah, those RU, uh, the Russian abbreviation, obviously, in, in those statements, the RU, is, is what, they, what intelligence sources, both inside and outside of Ukraine, are suggesting uh, 
Russia is experiencing in this campaign. You know, a big deal was made out of the fact that they had 190,000 troops around the border with a whole lot of equipment from their their combined arms army in the in the east. Well, that's great, but unfortunately what's happening is they are sustaining casualties beyond their apprehension. Uh, there are indicators that over 10,000 Russians have already died and that many more have either surrendered or, or went AWOL, uh, ran away, uh, or have been captured. There are repeated uh, indicators that equipment, Russian equipment, I mean, the, the funny ones are the the, the farmer towing a BMP or a tank down into his farm. Yeah, okay, that's humorous. But the fact of the matter is entire convoys are being destroyed. Uh, weapon systems are being uh, either stolen or taken off the battlefield by Ukrainian forces uh, or destroyed. Uh, there are indicators that over, uh, over two, by my last count, over 200 tanks, Russian tanks have been destroyed. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I looked, the number of fixed wing and rotary wing aircraft of the Russian forces have been destroyed. What, what is in fact happening is of this, this force of 190,000, uh, Russia is, was attempting what's called a battle of annihilation. They were looking to come in and circle the Donbass by coming from the south, coming from the north and having a big, what they call pocket uh, where they just say, okay, we just surrounded all of Ukraine's forces and they can't do anything, so we win. That's what's called the battle of annihilation. What Ukraine is running is what's called the battle of attrition. They are continuously piecemealing the Russian forces. And the Russian forces uh, are not having as great effect against Ukraine as the Ukraine army and the territorial force, the defense territorial forces are having against them. So what I was suggesting in that tweet yesterday was we're not paying as much attention to the brave actions, uh, brave and courageous actions of both the Russian army and the territorial forces. You add to that, Michael, and we've seen this on the news in various states that allegedly, various cities, I'm sorry, where allegedly uh, 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 Russia has surrounded uh, Kherson in the south, uh, Mariupol, uh, uh, Kiev, Kharkiv, and what you're seeing is the population continues to march against the Russian soldiers and embarrass them. Uh, so none of those cities are occupied. They may have some Russian forces in the city, but I'm just going to do it from the standpoint of numbers. This is called battlefield math. Okay, there, was a, there were 190,000 forces around the borders, which the, the government, our D, Department of Defense says about 90% of them are inside the country of Ukraine now. Okay, so let's say 150,000 plus are inside this, the nation of Ukraine, Ukraine a, a nation the size of the state of Texas with 44 million people, the majority of them who have stayed to fight with an army that has been training in a very different way than the Russians have over the last 20 years with a leadership at the head of their government in Zelensky that's very, very different than a guy named Putin that everyone will follow with support from a, a NATO organization of 30 nations to include the United States and the entire world wrapping themselves around them. You tell me who's got the better advantage on the battlefield right now. It isn't just about tanks versus people. It's about all those elements of will that the Ukrainian people uh, and military seem to have right now 
versus a Russian army where prisoners are saying they didn't even know why they were going into the country. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, and, 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 and military commanders who were furious because they're not taking their objectives and supply convoys that are being picked off on a road because they can't get off into the mud. So all of those things, to me, speak of defeat for the Russian military. Once that happens, all the other things we've been talking about is what will Putin do next? That's what's going to face the West here, I think, in a couple of weeks. And you would think that based on history, look at Chechnya, look at Afghanistan, you're fighting a people that are prepared to die for their country. And I, too, was amazed when I saw somebody captured that video of a series of Russian uh, infantry groups that were taken by the Ukrainians. And while they had them in zip ties, they were still feeding them with, you know, tea and so on. And the asked, somebody asked one of the Russian soldiers, you know, what are you doing here? And his response was, I have no clue. I have no, I it was I have a training no clue. Exercise. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Then there's also, of course, Putin's um, recent statement that if there are aircraft that are being deployed from other countries, NATO or not, right? Like they were going to send, I think, F-35s, if I'm not mistaken, to Poland and they, because the Ukrainians know how to fly the, uh, the aircraft, that Putin would now hold Poland and potentially America for providing the armament, um, they hold them responsible, and then they too would then be at war with Russia. That's a pretty yeah. bold statement. Yeah, he's threatening all of the NATO countries now. And I, and I think part of that, and the aircraft you were talking about, is called a MiG-29. It's the kind the Poles used to use before they started getting uh, upgunned American weapons like the F-16 and the F-22 or 35, rather. Uh, but Ukrainian uh, pilots are used to, to flying that old MiG-29, which was an old Warsaw Pact type of aircraft. So supplying them with that might increase their air the Ukrainians' air capability, and it's already pretty good. But what you're, to get to your point, I think what you're, you're suggesting, and it's what I believe Mr. Putin is trying to do, is continue to use threats. And he is attempting to entice NATO into this fight. And that's, that's a very, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a perspective I think he's trying to do in order to use potentially nuclear weapons or say to his domestic audience, see, I told you so. NATO is trying to attack us. And that's why I think the administration has been very careful about what they're doing. But the, in, the integration or the incorporation of Romanian or Polish or name that state that has the old MiG-29s that they're not using anymore into a fight for Ukraine, in my view, is a very smart idea. And his bluster and Putin's bluster and threat that he's going to consider that as an act of war uh, okay, great, dude. Considering an act of war, what the hell have you been doing for the last 30 days? 
you know whatever been, whatever he wants because that's what he believes that he's permitted right. to do whatever he wants and yeah you're correct it's 11,000 Russian soldiers and my heart goes out to those families too because they don't even know what the yeah. hell they're doing in the Ukraine fighting and I think there was something right. like 269 or 270 tanks that have been taken out but this brings me right. to a point that you just brought up because the prevailing narrative by many was really that Russia was this terrifying unbeatable horde and the reality is that they are completely ill-prepared they're ill-supplied and they seem to be trapped in this nightmare created by one and only Vladimir Putin now you've said from the beginning that this is really it's logistics that will ultimately prove to cause Putin's failure if you do me the favor explain to my listeners what you mean by this because logistics is probably the single most important thing that is keeping the Ukrainians right now strong and, you know, and angry. Yeah. Well, what, well, I'll start off by saying, Michael, I think you know that I'm a tanker. I'm an armor officer. So I spent my early days in tanks. And as I grew up in the tank community and became went from platoon leader to company commander to battalion commander to division commander, what I learned was that tanks are really awesome. They're sexy and they're cool to shoot. But... When it really comes down to a senior leaders understand that if you forget logistics, you're going to lose. Uh, logistics determine the art of the possible. It doesn't matter how many tanks you have on the battlefield. If you can't get them fuel, ammo, food, and the other necessities of combat, you are going to lose. When a tank runs out of fuel, you know what it becomes, yeah, Michael? A pile, a a pile of worthless garbage. Yeah, it's a pillbox. It's something that can't move. And so either the crew continues to fight it from a stationary position, which they can't do, or they jump and run. We're seeing a lot of that right now. So from a logistics standpoint, the hardest thing to do in war, in my view, is not to be a tanker, which I was. The hardest thing to do in war is to develop a logistic plan and make it work. And the Russians have failed miserably at this, miserably. And I saw this, I think I said it on CNN about two weeks ago, that this will be their Achilles heel and it will cause them to fail. And all the anchors said, oh, my gosh, you're you're already proclaiming defeat for the Russian army. I said, yeah, I am, because they have extremely bad leadership that doesn't care about their soldiers. Their training absolutely sucks. Their logistics plan was horrible. Their uh, the, the support of their population and their government leader is in the toilet. And by the way, these soldiers do not eat, you know, they don't equal one another. You know, and we're used to in the United States seeing our professional military soldiers who have served for four or five, 20 years. The Russian military is mostly a conscript army. That means they come in for one year. So you've got a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds who are on their first set of draft thinking that, you know, they're going to learn to be a soldier. They normally never fire their weapon systems. They maybe are given one or two bullets a year for their tanks and artillery pieces. And you're throwing them into a, uh, a battle that has multiple axes of advance coming in from the north, the east, the south, amphibious warfare, jets overhead, artillery. The only people that are doing half, a halfway decent job, and it's because it's a relatively simple art, is the, fire, the people who are firing the artillery and the missiles. That's not hard to do because they're doing it from anywhere from 17 to 100 miles away. They don't face the enemy when they're shooting their missiles. They don't see the results of the rounds as they land. And so they are not doing the up-close combat. 
When you're a tanker or an infantryman at the front line, you're seeing things very differently. And I think all of those things will contribute to Russia's defeat on the battle. I'd also suspect a lot of it has to do with nerves. I mean, these kids, you know, who are there for the first time, you know, it's not like a seasoned guy that fought in Iran and Iraq and, and so on. And, you know, constantly training, but with armaments, uh, you know, being deployed at your head and, and live rounds being fired at you, you know, where... <laughs> well, Putin said yesterday, Putin said yesterday he's going to bring in a thousand of his fighters from Syria. My first reaction to that, not to be flip, is bring it, dude, because those guys sucked in Syria, too. So bring it on. They're a bunch of knuckle-dragger, pipe-swinger type of guys, and he thinks they're their, his force. The first element, and not many people know this, Michael, but the first element that Mr. Putin sent in was something that the Russians called their VDK. That is, that, those are their airborne troopers. And in Russia, the airborne troopers are identified. They, they wear the uniform, but they wear a blue and white striped T-shirt underneath. And they are allegedly the best of the best. Uh, and, and they are, no kidding, a bunch of vet bro knuckle draggers that lift weights all day and, and you know, proclaim their, their testosterone levels. They went in on an air a parachute assault into an airfield in the middle of the daytime without any supporting artillery or tanks on the ground. And whenever you attempt to seize an airfield with a a parachute unit without the right kind of support, suppression of the enemy air defense against the planes or suppression of the ground forces that might come in and attack, you're asking for disaster. The major general commanding that unit was killed in action as well as a a huge number of soldiers. This alone by itself probably floored Vladimir Putin because he's used to using those guys as his shock troops. Yeah, but they were floating generals. They were floating targets. I mean, how hard hard is it? I mean, basically, that's the thing. (laughs) That's what they are. If you don't plan... If you don't plan an airborne operation with precision, you're going to have it result in disaster. And that's exactly what happened. And Putin has never experienced that kind of a disaster with his airborne forces because he has used them in the past as his palace guards. They are the shock troops that come in almost like riot police. They're not soldiers, to be sure, but many of them were killed on the second or third day of the fight. So that is an indicator of how badly it's going from Mother Russia right now. And then I have to ask you this, because again, with your vast experience uh, in military and strategy and so on, there's 40 mile convoy that's sitting there and they keep talking about it on CNN, MSNBC, et cetera. And I'm watching it 40 miles. Now, again, I have no military training or strategy, but why not just send 10, 20 drones in, each one with four missiles, sidewinder missiles onto it, blow the front, blow the back, collapse the center, and then just take the whole goddamn thing out. That's 40 miles of munitions, 40 miles of trucks, of you name it, and the heat from one exploding would cause the next one. It would become a chain reaction. You get rid of 40 miles worth of Russian armament that's headed into the Ukraine. Well, what, what I, the way I answer, I, the way I would answer you on that, Michael, is the same way I answered it on CNN about a week ago, because that became the shiny object that everybody was looking for. Why not go after that? It, you, if you had, if you were the Ukrainian commander and you had 20 drones or you had five drones or 10 drones, you might go after it, but you don't have that. You also don't have the air superiority that you need to attack a convoy with aircraft. 
And in addition to that, uh, you've got other targets that you're trying to, to what the military calls service. You've got 25 meter targets within the city that you're trying to really uh, put your attention to if you're the commander, if you have limited resources. And then the final thing that I'd say is they ain't going anywhere. Leave them out there. Let, let, let the guys driving those 40 miles worth of trucks sit in their truck for three days, freezing their ass off because they can't go anywhere. And they're running the engines and running out of fuel themselves. And then eventually we will go out and pick them off one by one. And in fact, in the last couple of days, that's exactly what they've done. They haven't gone anywhere to resupply anybody. So why not leave them out there freezing their asses off? That's That would be my choice as a commander, too. Well, like I said, it's the reason why I have you on mea culpa today, because I have about, <laughs> I have zero military strategy, right? My first reaction was, fuck it, blow the whole damn thing up, right? Send well, a message to Russia. Were, if, you were, if you were an American commander with a whole lot of helicopters and a whole lot of drones and a whole lot of aircraft flying for you, you would have done that in a, in a, a New York minute because it's what's called a target of opportunity. And it would have really hurt the Russian effort for a couple of days. But those guys weren't going anywhere anyway. And the Ukrainian commander had to decide what targets were more important. Is it a tank or an artillery piece? Or is it a truck filled with fuel that you'll eventually get to? Well, good. I don't feel as stupid as I felt when you gave me that other answer. Right. So let me ask you this, General. In less than a week, the United States and NATO have pushed more than 17,000 anti-tank weapons, including, you know, the famous Javelin missiles over the borders of Poland and Romania. And this is really, again, what we were talking about, all about logistics. Logistics is as important as ground troops and the, and the more, army. It's, more so. Well, more so, exactly. Right. How crucial is this lethal aid from the United States and NATO for the Ukrainians' ability to survive or even to beat back the invasion? It will beat back the invasion, Michael. It's extremely critical, and I'd even take it one step further. Last Saturday, I was in New York, and I got a text message from uh, the former commanding general of the Swedish Land Forces. He was a, my counterpart when I was in, in U.S. Army Europe. Great guy by the name of Bernd Grundebit. And he sent me a text, and he said, hey, Mark, he said, the Swedes have decided to send 5,000 AT-4s, which is a type of tank missile, but it's smaller than a Javelin, less sophisticated, but it's for shorter range. He said the Swedes have decided to send 5,000 AT-4s, and he named a couple other things. He says this is going to be announced by our government tomorrow, last Sunday. Um, that's a big deal. And you know why? Sweden's not even a member of NATO. Right. I mean, they are, they are an independent nation, not a member of NATO, and yet they've determined that they want to contribute to this as well. So what you're seeing is not only the, the NATO nations, the 30 NATO nations, 28 of which are in, in Europe, contributing these kind of things, but you're seeing the non-NATO nations, Israel, Sweden, uh, and I could name it, Japan, also contributing uh, uh, resources to this fight, which tells me the world is behind Ukraine and they are uh, uh, contrary to what Mr. Putin's trying to do. Well, let me ask you this in general, you know, because the United States has thus far been very careful, right, to avoid a situation where the war widens and we find ourselves fighting against the Russian army. Do you foresee a scenario where Putin widens the war, invades Poland or other Eastern Bloc nations, NATO countries, if only to shut down the NATO supply lines? Um. 
it's certainly a possibility, Michael, and I'll never say never, but like I've said repeatedly, he will. I'm not sure he's going to have a whole lot of forces left to do anything like that. And it, that, that then gets back to our previous conversation about the potential for nuclear weapons. You know, I, um, I'm just going to share this one highlight to you. The, the Russian military is thought to have about 5,000 fighter jets or bombers, part of their air force, about 5,000 fixed wing airplanes. The combined NATO air force is about 25,000. So when you're talking about going against a NATO state, I don't think even Vladimir Putin is that stupid. Uh, I mean, he could try and pick off parts, but as soon as you cross any kind of NATO boundary, you're going to have an Article 4 conference, and then you're going to have the, the creation of an Article 5 issue of we all fight for one that's being attacked, and it will happen. So no, I, I first of all, I don't think he'll have the resources when all this is all over. He will be, this will be like General Lee after the Battle of Gettysburg. He's just licking his tail and getting the hell out of there. He won't be able to fight again uh, if we allow him to reconstitute and we won't, the, the, the nation won't. Well, then that reminds me of Biden's statement the other day when he you know, proclaimed that if Russia steps one inch onto a NATO nation, then it's it's war. Um, Putin's response back was, yes, it's war, and it will be nuclear. You know, that's a tough response for Putin. And it wasn't yeah. like he had Stephen Miller, you know, putting out some stupid-ass response for Donald, right? You know, I'm talking about that was a Vladimir Putin-created response that came right off the rip as soon as Biden made the statement, which was then being hailed by the world as extremely yeah. tough. Putin comes back with one, which, if you think about it, it's mutually assured destruction. Well, he, he implied, he, he didn't specifically say nuclear weapons. He implied that it would take on a greater scale. What does that mean? The, the thing that I would suggest, though, Michael, is if it comes down to that, um, and, and this is something that I think uh, Secretary Austin, Lloyd Austin, a good friend of mine, said in response to that was he was very comfortable with the potential for the U.S. using our strategic triad uh, if, if it was required. So that, that, that is a very nuanced way of saying, uh, don't try it, dude, because we've got, it, we've got you covered in more ways than one, and ours are better than yours. And I think that's true. But unfortunately... There's about 100 million people in the world that would be caught in the crossfire between two nuclear states like that. And that's why we need to avoid this at any cost. It's, you can only avoid it if the other side is willing to engage, right? And the second, right after he made that statement that it would be nuclear, because he did make that statement, at least that's what I've read. Um, he then went ahead and he deployed nuclear weapons to um, active status, Okay. I, you know, truthfully, I, I'm not a nuclear guy, so I can't, uh, you know, engage in a, in a, in a conversation which talks about the detail, but I'm not sure what an active status is for a nuclear weapon. Uh, you know, he can say, Hey, I put all my nuclear force on active status. When you're talking about submarines, aircraft, and missiles, I don't know what that means. Cause I know how our nuclear triad exercises and ramps up 
And there's no such thing as an active status. It's, it's you either alert them to prepare to, to fire or you don't, or you launch uh, nuclear submarines into an ocean or you don't. So I, I'm, not, I'm just not, and you can bet your life that we're tracking all of his nuclear capabilities right now in various ways. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Well, if the Russians call for mass mobilization, do you foresee mass protests or even um, a move to depose Putin? I mean, how secure, again, is his position there in Russia? Well, I, I, I think I said that in the treat that you mentioned yet, uh, a little while ago uh, that I, I sent out yesterday. If Mr. Putin asked for general mobilization of his military and his nation, that's when you're going to see some unbelievable protests because they do not know what's going on in Ukraine, like you said earlier. Uh, so if you're talking about going to all the mothers in Russia and saying, hey, we're about to mobilize our military and go on full alert. First of all, I don't think he has the equipment to do that, uh, to put those soldiers on full alert. And it, it mostly will be for defense of the motherland, which they've done before. And there ain't nobody attacking the motherland, truthfully. But it also would cause a, a combination of mobilization of your military age males and females during an economic crisis while you're getting your ass handed to you in a foreign country when people are protesting in all of your cities. I, I don't know how that turns out for Mr. Putin if he, if he wants to go that right. That, I actually think that would be extremely detrimental to any kind of strategy he's trying to to execute. Right, because I could imagine you would see all of these of age uh, Russian soldiers, male, female, that would then be going to the chiropractor and making claims that they have bone spurs <laughs> in their feet and that they're unable, right? I mean, everybody, look, somebody has to learn something from Trump's bullshit, right? But, you know, look, General, as we, as we now near the hour and so on, and I thank you so much for your wisdom, for your time and so on. I have one last question for you. Russian spokesmen continue to maintain that they are not targeting civilians, but the record and what we're seeing says something very different. Can Putin and his commanders be charged with war crimes? And do you yes. foresee a scenario where he is actually tried before an international tribunal like uh, Milosevic? Yes. Remember, Milosevic, Ceausescu, I mean, we could talk, Saddam Hussein were all leaders of countries with large militaries that used them inappropriately. Um, the, the, the key is, if Mr. Putin is, remains as the president of Russia, uh, it would be very difficult to bring him before the world court. But at the same time, you can certainly censure them uh, in, abs in absentia. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think, you know, he is going to turn out to, to be tried as a war... My belief is he should be tried as a war criminal, and the likelihood that he will is pretty high. What you have to do, and I think Mr. Biden, President Biden, uh, addressed this the other day when the press were really trying to beat him into saying, is he a war criminal? Is he a war criminal? I think what's happening is there's an awful lot of lawyers who are looking at the evidence as they build, as that evidence builds, and they're putting a case together for, for the Hague. And uh, yeah, I certainly believe I personally believe without being of a lawyerly ilk and without being a counselor, that there's certainly enough evidence to accuse Mr. Putin and his generals of war crimes. How that, how that is executed, uh, I don't know. Uh, that's, I'll leave that up to the legal teams, but there's certainly, in my view, enough evidence. He has attacked civilians. 
He has attacked civilian infrastructure. He has used weapons that have been banned by the International Red Cross and the laws of land warfare. He has uh, chosen objectives that have no military value whatsoever. And there's about eight, and he has used hostages and attacked infrastructure that is that is critical, like the, the nuclear power plants. So you, you have those six and about 10 other things that he has done that violate uh, the, the Red Cross's rules and the Geneva Convention. So you could certainly charge him with war crimes. If you would, and then I'm going to let you go, General, because I know you have more important things to do to help out here. Um, uh, it's what, been a pleasure. Please tell me, what, what military armaments did Putin and the Russian army use that are banned by the Geneva Convention? I never saw, I never heard that, and I haven't been able to find that. They, they have, they've used cluster munitions. Uh, which is a munitions that I'm very familiar with because I was hit by one during the Operation Desert Storm. What it is is a, a missile from an airplane or a rocket from an artillery tube that goes out, explodes in the sky, and it opens up and bomblets fall off like little hand grenades. And uh, when they hit the ground, most of them explode. They're called either ICM, Improved Conventional mis- uh, Munitions, or DPICM, dual purpose improve conventional munitions. When they hit the ground or they hit an object, they explode. The problem is, Michael, they've had anywhere from a 10 to 20% dud rate. So what you have is these hand grenades that are armed lying around the ground in civilian neighborhoods, and many of them in children's playgrounds or near kindergartens. So that is when you're targeting civilians with that kind of munition, and you're even using that kind of munition uh, when it's not required, uh, th- that would be a, a war crime. I don't know of, of the use of the thermal barrack weapon system that has been advertised. This is a fuel gas explosive that shoots out around, uh, an initial round comes out and, and basically spreads all the gas uh, within the round uh, uh, in a large area. And then a second explosion causes all that to blow out, blow up. So it's a combination of an increased concussion increased blast over a wider area, and it's considered a, uh, a banned weapon of war. And he, he has deployed, I know, at least four of them in the theater. I just don't know personally if he, is, if he has used them in the theater, but there are indicators that he has. Well, it's a, now I know what you're talking about with the, uh, with the grenades, because I was watching on CNN, and uh, as one of the journalists that are there, and God bless them, and I certainly hope that they all come back you know, healthy. Um, yeah. He was like, oh my God. And there was a grenade standing right there. And then he goes, there's another one over there and another one over there. So yeah, I, I suspect that there has to be a lot more than 20% of them are duds because that bridge, which they were blowing up, <laughs> I mean, had at least 15 of them as they were just walking yeah. by, which I thought was, I mean, I don't know how many come out, um, you know, from that. Well, when, when you see... There, there have been a couple of films of explosions, which when I initially saw them, I said, that's, IC, that's, that's a cluster bomb because it has ICM. You'll see the smoke of the rounds landing, and it will sort of um, camouflage the activity. But if you see inside of it, there's little pops like, like uh, phot- photographers, uh, flashbulbs. That's a, a, that's a cluster munition because as each one lands, it blows up. We had... Uh, we had one land on our squadron headquarters when I was a young major during de- on the third day of Desert Storm. And within about 15 seconds, it, it wounded uh, 
33 people. And where and and there were a lot of duds left on the ground in the desert sand. I was one of those wounded. And what was interesting is, you know, we didn't know what it was when it exploded overhead because you hear this pop overhead that disperses the munitions. And then it's like being in a giant popcorn popper, being inside of a popcorn popper with a lot of shrapnel going around everywhere. So that's the kind of munitions that have been. Uh, uh, there's there's a document. Unfortunately, the U.S. and Russia has not signed it banning these kinds of weapons, but they are banned by the International Commission of the Red Cross. Well, General, again, thank you for your time. Always great to see you uh, get your perspective on this international travesty that's going on here. And I thank you um, for your time today. Not a problem, Michael. You have a good day and keep doing what you're doing. Okay. You as well. Thank you, General. And now for today's mea culpa. In thinking about the bravery of the Ukrainian people in standing up to Russian aggression, I can't help but juxtapose that courage against the corruption, the sleaze, and general cynicism of Donald Trump and the far right. For all their fucking bluster, many of them have never served in the armed forces, much less in a war. Trump's draft dodging via bone spur stands in direct contrast to the images of countless everyday Ukrainians joining the fight against Russia. Seeing these brave soldiers leaving their families and doing whatever it takes to save their country is something I'll never forget and neither should any of you. What's happening now amounts to the most consequential geopolitical shift since the end of the Cold War and has created the greatest European crisis since World War II. Thousands will die in sacrifice to maintain their sovereignty and millions will be displaced from their homes. But we must be prepared for some basic sacrifices on our end as well. First and foremost will be the cost of gas. In boycotting Russian oil, we will likely see the increase at the pump. Prices are already approaching $6 a gallon in some places. But it's that oil that is keeping the Putin regime awash in petrodollars. Boycott the oil and you choke off his access to capital. But that also means some pain in the pocketbook for millions of Americans. President Biden on Tuesday issued his most expansive warning yet that there would be a significant price for Americans to pay as a result of the war in Ukraine, one that he argued was worth the cost in the name of supporting a fledgling democracy. The remarks came at a time when Americans are experiencing the ripples of a war unfolding half a world away. Companies are disengaging from the Russian economy, shutting their stores and pulling their products. The stock market has plunged and in one of the most visible signs, prices at the pump have soared. An NPR survey released last week showed that 83% of Americans supported the economic sanctions imposed against Russia. The survey also found that 69% of Americans said they support the sanctions even if it results in higher energy prices in the United States. The question remains how long Americans will be willing to continue to sacrifice as energy prices continue to rise. The GOP will pounce and use this against the president. 
Biden at this point is not asking American lives to be sacrificed and instead is requesting an economic sacrifice. It's not the blood he's asking for, it's the treasure. He's giving weapons paid for by American taxpayers to Ukraine. He is leading a robust sanctions program that affects American companies. His ability to lead America and the world through this current crisis will ultimately define his presidency and his legacy for generations to come. So let's help him get there. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth.